0: On our way,
1: yeah, I got it. probably just send up.
0: anytime? Anytime. Okay. Cool. Well, good morning, church. Glad to be here once again. Seems like we're morphing from indoor to outdoor, and this is, this is nice. It's nice for a change and um, to be out. And If you would look at your bulletin, our uh, song is He is Our God. Are you doing announcements first, or are we going to just go ahead and sing? All right, please stand as we sing. Of a thousand birds
1: Rusty asked me if I would read the the scripture for today. didn't know it was going to be a small book, but here we go. Um, This is Acts 19, 23 through 41. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. (laughs) The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He mentioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, is Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? <clears throat> Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed my goddess. If, then, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, We would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it after he had said this he dismissed the assembly let us pray for our, our meeting today father god we thank you for this day this beautiful day you've given us to gather together in the fellowship of the saints and lord we just uh thank you for this uh timely word and we just ask that you would add to the blessings of your word give us the understanding that we need to to, to have today and, and bless the person that's speaking today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: i right.
2: I had Keith read from Acts chapter 19 because I think it gives us a good setting an understanding of Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, what was going on and if you read the preceding verses to where he read you learn a little bit more about the planning of the church but we're looking this morning at Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 and John includes basically letters by christ himself to seven specific churches in asia minor what would be modern day turkey today Uh, and that's where christianity really exploded in the early days was in asia minor and other parts of europe but in particular asia minor but these seven churches represent really all churches i mean any church can look at these seven letters and say well, that's us. I mean, typically we tend to look at these churches and say, "Oh, well, I, I know a church like that. But we really need to look at the churches and say, where do we fit in? And honestly, I think to some degree we fit in to the first church, and that's really a compliment. There were only two churches that Christ did not really uh, condemn and warn strongly Uh, out of the seven churches. The first church that's mentioned, Revelation 2, 1 through 7, is the church of Ephesus. So listen to the words of the first seven verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, so he's telling John to write this. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have left your first love therefore remember where you have fallen And repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of god now john spoke on this passage june 17th 2018 how many remember that boy i struggled to remember that i was actually once i went back and listened to it i remembered it then but i didn't not know it had even been preached on recently in our church it's amazing how we forget so easily But the late Francis Schaeffer once observed that, quote, the meaning of the word Christian has become reduced to practically nothing because the word Christian as a symbol has been made to mean so little. (coughs) It has come to mean everything and nothing. And honestly, (coughs) excuse me, I'm struggling with allergies, so bear with me this morning. The term Christian means Christ-like and it comes from the church at Antioch because the people were like Christ. They reminded people of Christ. Actually the one who is a Christian is one that's had a heavenly birth. They have imputed righteousness, righteousness that is imputed from God himself. And that person is growing by the spirit of god to become christ-like it's not that we're perfect it's that we've been redeemed we have been given life from god and we are changing he is molding us into his image a christian is also one that loves the lord because he or she has received the love of god we love first john 4 Because he first loved us. And the believer, the true believer's love, is the greatest love in his life. Remember the words? We've quoted them a couple times in recent weeks. From Matthew 10, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, Jesus said. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The greatest love that we have should be as believers the Lord Jesus Christ the church at Ephesus was a group of believers believing disciples we could call them that loved the Lord and as you would see or you will see in this text today they had not lost their love for the Lord or for even other believers they had lost the first expression of love notice again the recipient To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, angel is the word angelos. It means to bring tidings, a messenger. It can be used of an angel or even a pastor. So John is addressing the pastor of the church at Ephesus. The pastor is the one that's to communicate this message, the message that God is giving. This is a, a message directly from God himself but it's to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, write this. The church in Ephesus was founded on Paul's third missionary journey. He had been there on his second, but he actually founded the church on the third. But when Paul arrived there on his second missionary journey, there were believers already there. So where do you think they had come from? Well, it's speculated, but most scholars believe That these are some that were in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, that came to know the Lord. Some of the 3,000 that had come, they had come to Jerusalem for the feast, and then after they were saved, many of them went back home. And most believe that that's where these believers originated. And there were many noted people involved in ministry in Ephesus Paul, Timothy, Apollos, Aquila. Priscilla we even believe that John the Apostle wrote first second third John from Ephesus or at least from that area and Acts chapter 19 records the founding of the church as well as the persecution It, it appears from Acts 19 that Paul had been preaching there for at least two years before the persecution came now although Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor and the the letter to Pergamum refers God refers to Pergamum as where Satan's throne is sometime we'll talk about that but although Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor Ephesus was the most prominent city in Asia this is where these believers lived in Ephesus Ephesus was a center of commerce Ephesus was located on the Kester River on the slopes of the Kaster River Valley that flowed into the Aegean Sea. There was a sophisticated system of docks and levees on the river so that ships could travel up from the sea and drop off their merchandise. Ephesus Ephesus was a center for goods also flowing from the east to the sea. They came right through there, through that Kaster River. Ephesus was also the hub of four main roads. I mean, this was a central location in Asia Minor. One came from the north, from Pergamum and Smyrna. Another came from the northeast, from uh, Sardis, Galatia, and uh, Phrygia. One came from the Euphrates River Valley in the southeast. That was a trade route that brought wealth in from uh and laodicea and even from beyond even from asia and one came from the south from the uh, meandrian valley so ephesus had many names it was described many ways it was called the marketplace of asia a roman writer called it the light of asia i mean We're talking about amazing city. Some alluding to John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress have said that it should be called the Vanity Fair of the ancient world. And that's probably true. It was also called the Highway of Martyrs because martyrs from Asia were brought through Ephesus on their journey to be taken to the arena in Rome, to be thrown to the lions. Christians were brought through on their way to be slaughtered Ephesus was also a free city Rome had deemed Ephesus responsible to govern itself without any assistance so it was free of any Roman garrisons or any outside control so they were trusted in the Roman world Ephesus was an athletic city athletes came from all over to participate in the games held there in the theater of over 24,000 it could seat that many it was comparable considered comparable to the olympics the games that were held in ephesus ephesus was known for uh the curiey street the famous street the celsus library again the theater that held over 24 maybe 25,000 people and the temple of diana diana Let's say Ephesus was the center of Diana worship. Diana was the Roman name for the Greek God that Keith read about, Acts 19, called Artemis. She was one of the most sacred goddesses in the ancient, civilized, Greco-Roman world. Believed to be the daughter of Zeus and the twin sister of Apollo. Her temple was made from glittering Persian marble. So it was magnificent. That's what was in Ephesus. Artemis, by the way, was a fertility goddess. Diana or Artemis, a fertility goddess. Scores of eunuchs, thousands of priestesses, prostitutes, unnumbered heralds, many singers, flute players, dancers, we'll put it this way, participated in gross, immorality in the temple I mean you're talking about paganism and immorality it was the hub of immorality Heraclitus a Greek philosopher of Ephesus said this the morals of the temple were worse than the morals of animals because even dogs do not mutilate one another so that's what's being described in contrast to that though Artemis was known as a goddess, believe it or not, that protected. So people were encouraged to place their money in the temple for security. That money was loaned out for interest, making Ephesus and the region extremely wealthy. And we've already, Keith read about it, statues of Artemis, Diana, made from silver and were sold all over Asia and Europe at that time bringing in even more money to this place it was a wealthy place actually Asia Minor was known for their many gods so they were polytheistic as we would call it it did not matter if you worship Christ that was no problem as long as you paid allegiance to the other gods like Diana or Artemis or Zeus or Apollo But Jesus said to Satan, remember this when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness? Away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Christianity is exclusive. Biblical Christianity does not add Jesus to all our other gods. We repent of all our other gods. And trust in Jesus Christ that's biblical Christianity Jesus said I am the way not a way I am the way the truth and the life that's why so many people have problems with Christianity today it's exclusive it's not inclusive and yet I've seen on the mission field where some religions like Catholicism will come in And they just adapt all the other gods with it they add the christ of catholicism with traditional indian religion or whatever religion happens to be in that area and it's very easy to get people to follow after a jesus that's inclusive but when we must repent turn from our idols and follow him that's a different message indeed by the time of the apostle john a new emperor had come on the scene, Domitian. 81 AD. During his reign, he had a 20-foot statue, 27-foot statue of himself set up in Ephesus in a place called, he called Domitian Square. It was designed in such a way to proclaim that he was god of gods and lord of lords. That's what he believed, that's what he wanted people to believe. Every person traveling past by land or sea came within eyesight of that Domitian statue. Every person that lived in Ephesus was required, listen to this, they were required to burn incense on the altar to enter the Agora. The Agora was pretty much like a cross between a mall and a flea market. It sort of had some of both concepts. So you could not take your product, if you grew vegetables and sold them, or if you made a leather product and you wanted to sell it, you could not go to the Agora. If you wanted to go buy something, you could not go there without burning incense to Domitian. You were no buying or selling. makes you think about something, doesn't it? Domitian was known for his harsh persecution of both Christians and Jews because neither group accepts many gods. Neither group would admit the deity of false gods. Eventually, Domitian was assassinated in his palace in 96 AD, but before that happened, he was responsible for the torture and death of many Christians and Jews as well. Notice now the correspondence. This correspondent, excuse me, Jesus Christ. Verse 1B. Revelation 2, 1B. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Although the writer's not named here, the description makes it obvious who He is this is the Lord Jesus Christ he's the glorious Lord of the church the phrase the one who holds seven stars in his right hand is taken from chapter 1 taken from the description of Christ in John's vision in chapter 1 John describes the seven stars as being in Christ's right hand showing that they are ministers Pastors under his power as he rules, Christ rules his churches. Christ also describes himself again as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So here we have Christ scrutinizing, examining, assessing, evaluating each of the churches as their sovereign ruler, their founder, their head. He has authority to govern and That includes evaluating the churches that he governs. It also reminds us he's in the midst. He's among the churches. We're not alone. Jesus walks in the midst of the churches. We're not doing this by ourselves. We're not somehow separated from the head of the church. We are connected. He is here with us. He stands with us. He enables us. The seven churches are the seven golden lampstands. So each church is a light shining the truth of God into a very dark world. Let's face it. I mean, if there's anything in recent days that I've been reminded of that's really hit me is how dark, how blind the world is around us. Folks, the world is dark. They have no light, but the churches are to be a light for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does it, does anyone light a lamp and puts it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house. And then he said, let your light, shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven churches are to be a light light represents truth it represents spiritual awareness not walking in the darkness or the blindness of life the psalmist said in psalm 119 your word god's word is a lamp to my feet And a light to my path the Word of God is our light and we're to shine the Word of God we're to preach the Word of God and proclaim the Word of God we must proclaim the Word of God in a dark world we must live God's Word in a dark world and that means forsaking all to follow him that means loving one another this is how all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another notice the commendation Verse two and three, and then verse six, I know your deeds and your toll and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Then verse six, yet this you do, you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I know your deeds, your toil and your perseverance. Deeds here is the word for works or acts. Toil is, means to labor to the point of exhaustion or pain. These believers in Ephesus had toiled. they had fought, they had served, they had endured. They had persevered. And that word perseverance means cheerful endurance. It wasn't just endurance. It's just not just that we struggle through life or we struggle to endure in the things of God, but they cheerful. No matter that they were facing persecution for not honoring Artemis and then not honoring Domitian. They cheerfully endured. It didn't matter what came upon them. And the Ephesian believers were commended, basically, for their sweat in the service for Christ. Dr. John MacArthur writes, If your service to Christ is just an addition to your life, then it is meaningless. The Christian is to spend his life for Christ, not hang on to it. People say, I would certainly like to get involved, but I've been filling out of sorts. We are to toll, he writes, for Christ. Service for him is no bed of roses. You say that sounds legalism, but there's no legalism involved. You love Christ enough so that you do not care about the consequences, end of quote. Jesus said, whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You might as well give up. If you're not willing to take up your cross to follow him. That's the message of the gospel. You see, we don't understand what faith is today. We believe that faith is praying a prayer and going on with our lives. But that's not biblical saving faith. Saving faith takes up the cross to follow Christ. It's willing to forsake all to follow him because he's worth it. Because he's worthy. The Ephesian believers here are working, planning, sharing Christ, discipling believers, helping those with both physical and spiritual needs. They are under a yoke and they're plowing and they loved every minute of it. Cheerful endurance. See, service to Christ is a joy. If it's not, something's wrong. They were commended for their perseverance uh the word perseverance uh hupamone means steadfast or again cheerful endurance it means i don't care what's going on or how much persecution i have to endure i will not give up i will not quit i will not stop for him even if it means my life and we're living in a time that we could face something like that someday before our lives are over. Jesus continues, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. You know what the best way to stand against false teaching is? It's to know the truth, the truth of the word of God. If they train somebody how to recognize a counterfeit bill, they don't train you in all the possibilities of counterfeit money. They train you what the real thing looks like. If you want to know how to stand against false doctrine, know true doctrine. Know what the Bible teaches. That's why we need to be in the Word of God. The church at Ephesus stood strong despite the men that tried to destroy it legalism had tried to put them under bondage that adding works to faith as not the evidence or the outcome of faith but adding works as a means of salvation the Libertines and that's what we're going to see predominantly mentioned here tried to tell them that they could do anything that they wanted but the Ephesians tested them all yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the nicolaitans which jesus said i also hate the nicolaitans were a group predominantly associated with pergamum but they were in, entrenched i should say that's what i'm trying to get out in ephesus Some believe this group originated from a deacon that was put into the church in Acts chapter 6 called Nicholas. Others believe that he simply made a statement at some point that was misinterpreted and used for the basis of the cult. We really don't know, but here's the deal. The Nicolaitans replaced liberty with license and perverted God's grace. That sums it up clement of alexandria who lived during this time said that the nicolaitans abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats leading a life of self-indulgence see they traded liberty for license you know we're free let's just do as we please it doesn't matter what we do in our bodies and we will talk about this when we start uh, when we start first john but Gnosticism really promoted if and, you know I'll explain it more in the next couple of weeks but Gnosticism really promoted this idea because flesh was evil the spirit was good so what you do in your bodies it don't matter just live like you want to it doesn't matter I guess in your heart live for God but in your bodies do as you please so it really promoted this verse 3 says and you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary Again, we see perseverance, we see endurance. Why did they endure? The Lord tells us, for my name's sake. The supreme motive was the glory of God. It was to exalt the name of Christ. We need to be faithful. When we're faithful, We demonstrate that we serve a God that's faithful. We show him to be a faithful, loving father as we demonstrate a changed life that never gets tired and never gives up. We demonstrate the amazing love of God when we sacrifice ourselves to serve and to love one another and to meet the needs. When we put the needs of somebody else above my own need what a testimony remember this is how all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another notice the Lord's concern and this is where we're headed with this (laughs) we're already implying it but I have this against you Jesus said that you have left your first love and it's not so much the first love that you had when you believe but the first way that love is expressed or was expressed love for Christ love for one another love for the lost he's saying remember how you were when God saved you that you had a heart to serve the Lord you had a heart to serve you know when we get born again we're so amazed at what god has done if we've understood the grace of god you know we've got a lot of zeal but not a lot of knowledge but then when we grow in knowledge sometimes the zeal burns out a little bit and i think that's what's being taught here we get saved just tell me what to do and i'll do it later on we might just be making excuses and avoiding doing anything we don't want to do But we need to have a heart to serve. That's love. Love is not a filling per se. Love, agape love, is much bigger than that. Because we have the love of God, the Spirit. Hey, the fruit of the Spirit. Remember the long list? What that fruit encompasses? The first description is love. We love one another. We love God. That sums up the whole law. If we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love one another as ourselves, the whole law is fulfilled. We don't even need a list if we love God and love one another. That's all we need. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. John writes, First John 3.14, We know, don't miss it here, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death there's no excuses if a professor of Christ does not love the brethren then they're only a professor they're not a possessor of Christ notice the Lord's command verse 5 therefore remember where you've fallen repent and do the deeds that you did at first or else i'm coming to you and will remove the lampstand out of its place unless you repent remember where you've fallen look back to the early days to see how far you've wandered away from the expression of love in your life that fire to serve god and to, to serve one another you know sometimes we move so gradually if we look back to yesterday or last month or even last year we don't realize how far we've moved but when we look back to our first deeds to when we were born again it becomes apparent that we have wandered away from doing the deeds that we are to do he says repent and do the deeds you did at first there's the expression of love we're not saying that these people i don't think god's saying that these people didn't love him or love one another but the first expression of love the deeds you did at first if you don't repent i'm coming to you i will remove the lampstand out of its place unless you repent and i believe the lampstand here is likely referring to our testimony no longer be lights to the world around us you know i'm afraid that the lord has removed the lampstand from many churches today they're no longer a light no longer a beacon of truth or hope no longer quick to serve the lord people are no longer willing to sacrifice to serve one another to forsake all to serve the lord again by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for one another notice the Lord's counsel finally in verse 7 he who has an ear he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God those who have saving faith hear the voice of God. My sheep know me and they follow me. Remember what it says in John? Those who have saving faith, those who have been born from above, hear the voice of God. Do you hear the voice of God? If you're a true believer, you do, and you respond. You see, the writers over and all, really throughout Scripture, don't necessarily assume, they actually take into consideration that some of these people that profess Christ may not possess Him. See, those who hear the voice of God, those who repent, actually in the long run demonstrate themselves to be true believers. It's those that overcome he says in the last half of the verse to him who overcomes I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God saving faith overcomes saving faith repents it endures it's the definition the nature and the evidence of saving faith first John 5 5 Who is the one who overcomes the world? Who is it? But he who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. See, true faith in the Son of God, true faith in the Messiah, the Lord of the universe, overcomes. Overcomes the evil one as it says in 1st John as well James writes this what use is it my brethren if someone says he has faith and has not works can that faith save him can the kind of faith that doesn't produce works save a person the answer is no there's a kind of faith that saves and a kind of faith There's an easy believism that's so prominent today that says, just pray this prayer and you'll be okay. That's not faith. Biblical saving faith overcomes the world. Biblical saving faith overcomes self. It overcomes the wicked one. So while we at Cornerstone Church should be commended, looking back at what God has done, Let me ask you this and you can, you know, we can answer this for our church, maybe. But the most important thing is I answer this for me. Is there any sense that I'm like the Ephesians where I have abandoned my first love for the Lord? We can look back at our deeds And see how far we've come to know if that has happened have we lost our first love what we do with this message just like those in ephesus demonstrates our faith in the lord jesus christ or our lack of it he says this he who has an ear let him hear What the spirit says to the churches god is speaking through his word are you listening do you hear him god is speaking it may be in a still soft voice but god is speaking the world may be falling down around us but god's still real he's still on his throne And he speaks to those who hears. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, that you hear us. May we have ears to hear. Your spirit is at work today. Just as he was in Acts 2. Just as he was in Acts 19. Throughout the New Testament. The early days of the church. God, these believers live in a day that the world was against them and that's always been true but it was so evident in Ephesus the many gods the demand to acknowledge false gods the demand to acknowledge the Emperor Domitian as God of gods and Lord of lords. But God, your church thrived in that day. No matter the persecution, no matter what they faced, God, your spirit went forth in power. Your word was preached. People were born again. And people stood against the evil around them they did not accept false teaching in the church not in Ephesus God may we stand against wrong against teaching that leads astray against the teaching that draws itching ears and God may we love one another May we go back to our first love and love one another. Love you and love one another. God, we know when we do that. We fulfill your law. Because your law has been written, engraved on our hearts. And for that today, we thank you. And all God's people said,
1: Amen. Amen. Please stand. All right.
2: Thank you for coming we're going to have lunch in a few minutes if you're here what's that he was cheering oh <laughs> I thought you wanted attention or something I can't hear you know that <laughs> but um, I was I was thinking about the words of the song we were just singing that Brent had chosen the first you know the first uh, verse there is so profound I am a sinner your blameless Lord my sins against you can't be ignored they will be punished I know they must your law demands it for you are just every sin will be paid for either Christ pay for your sins or we will pay for our sins and we are sinners before a holy God you know I know people view things different ways, but I've never had the problem. I've had a lot of problems, but I never had the problem of, of thinking that I was good, so good that I didn't need the Lord. My problem has always been, if I've ever struggled with anything, is how could God forgive me? Because I know how bad I am. I know how much I need his forgiveness, but that's the beauty of it god that's grace the god that forgives the undeserving the unworthy people that come to repent and admit that they have no hope apart from him that's the gospel and i challenge you with the gospel of jesus christ that jesus took our place and he was victorious over death and was raised again for our justification that we could be declared right before a holy God. Let me close with the words of John again in Revelation 22. Sort of a different focus here, but looking ahead to what God's promise because God's word stands true, folks. I may fail you, people will fail you. The world will certainly fail you, but God will never fail you, and his word will never fail. John says, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Just a little picture of the heaven that we await. Doesn't matter what we endure in this life. Doesn't matter the persecution we go through. God's promised us a glorious home in heaven. For those who believe on his name. Let's thank the Lord for the food. John, would you thank the Lord for the food and for his word today?